0: You want to achieve mastery in some sense in your life. So all these things come together. And for some people, community becomes very addictive. I've certainly been in communities about products and games where the game or product became of second importance because the community in itself just became my main driver to come back to this group of people nerding out about something that I wasn't even using or playing all that much. But I loved the ideas about it.
1: Hello and welcome to MetaMuse. Muse is a tool for deep work on iPad and Mac. But this podcast isn't about Muse the product, it's about the small team and the big ideas behind it. I'm Adam Wiggins, joined by my colleague, Mark McGrannigan. Hey, Adam. And our guest today, Ramsey's Out of LogSeek. Hi, Adam and Mark. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. And I understand you started your professional life as a Spanish teacher.
0: Yeah, that's correct. When I finished my associate degree, I was about 16 years old. Here in the Netherlands, you'd leave high school very early. So 16 years old, I started my associate degree and then finished when I was 18. So I enrolled in college, did a double degree in Spanish language and culture, and then also teaching it. And that is basically what yeah, triggered the obsession with learning and specifically learning languages so both natural languages and computer languages that is how it all started all the sleepless nights trying to figure out why something is not working or why i don't understand
1: something (laughs) can i assume you probably fell down the space repetition anki rabbit hole at some point i'm still hooked
0: 15 years after discovering it so i just finished before we started this call i just finished my 100 plus italian repetitions which I'm now doing, so I'm learning Italian through immersion, flashcards, and a lot of TV shows. So, yeah.
1: Netflix has definitely been a very big boon to language learners, particularly with their very solid audio and subtitle selections and the ability to rewind and re-listen when you didn't quite catch something and so on. And the tools build on top of that. So they're actually tools that will let you capture
0: subtitles with a screenshot, I think there's even options to capture the audio, like a piece of audio with it. So yeah, definitely the tools in the last decade have definitely made language learning easier. Obviously the flashcard tools, but also note-taking tools, obviously, as you dive deeper into a language, really make it a study project. That is basically, I started with the flashcards and then I moved more and more towards the personal knowledge management nerding out over the more intricate parts of the languages that I was learning.
1: I guess I can see the path there. This is the part where I'd normally ask, what was the path that brought you to LogSeq? But I think that almost answered the question a little bit, especially when you talk about the, is it the ThinkStack club? Is your kind of online learning platform that maybe bridged the gap between those two endpoints?
0: Yeah, so in like very quickly, run through my curriculum. So basically after graduating as a Spanish teacher and teaching for several thousands of hours, because internships start very early in the Netherlands, Mm. I couldn't find a job as a teacher. So (laughs) I ended up actually as a telemarketer for two years on the phone with IT managers, mostly decision makers or stakeholders in IT departments trying to get appointments, like physical appointments for colleagues of mine and I would just cold call people each and every day. That's where my hunger for learning came in very handy because I had to learn a lot about the IT space. So what companies operate, what technologies are there. So not just from a software perspective, like I knew obviously operating systems, but also servers, networks, complex systems. So I had to learn a lot. So note-taking became more of a focus for me as I was on the phone, taking lots of notes, finding basically little rabbit holes to go down to as someone would mention something like a technology on the phone. I would just say, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, sure, sure. And, and the meanwhile, I would write down some terms and then spend half an hour researching that, taking some notes. Like we had an internal wiki as well, because there were more guys like me who didn't know anything too much about the IT like certain parts of the IT ecosystem, like the corporate IT ecosystem, and we're eager to learn. So we're just a bunch of guys eager to learn and practicing our skills. And that ended up laying the groundwork for me becoming more and more technical, advancing through the corporate IT letter, basically joining Oracle, becoming a customer success manager. And that helped me listen more and more to customers, figure out what are the issues they run into. So obviously interviewing skills, note-taking again, very important, came into play. And that's how in the end I ended up with Luxeek. as I was doing more and more online with community just because it's a passion of mine, I like it. And I got into community when I started with language learning and I just cap at it learning through community as I progressed in my career. I, again, found my way back to community and then say, okay, what have I learned in all these years? What have I seen not work? Like communities that I've been a part of that went like south that became very toxic. And what are the communities that still thrive? Now that I look back 15 years later, there's some language learning communities that have become super toxic. Nobody is there anymore. And other communities thrive. And there's some clear markers, I would say, that show, okay, this will more or less predict if a community will thrive in the future, or if it continues on this path, if it's going to basically die out
1: at some point. Yeah, I think language learning is uniquely suited, or perhaps I should say, tends to be something that really benefits from community. I think a lot of things do, many different interesting skills and career things and so on. But maybe language learning can be just so continuously frustrating And you just need this, of course, you need the internal motivation, but there's something about others going through it the same time as you. I continue to think that the community aspect, almost the like group therapy aspect of Y Combinator is actually one of the things that makes it successful in the Silicon Valley entrepreneurship world. It's just being around some other people who are going through the same thing as you, experiencing the same struggles. And then when the going gets tough, as it always does, you can kind of find strength in the others who are going through it with you. So yeah, I could see where language learning would be just ideal for that in some sense. Yeah, it's both for learners, so there's a lot of knowledge in
0: the language learning community. Obviously, there's also drama like in any other nerdy niche. There are people very contentious about flashcards versus no flashcards or grammar focused (laughs) study over just watching TV shows. There's always some reason to have discussions. But it's not just useful for learners, but I've also found it useful as a teacher. And I think that's how I got into community in the first place is as a teacher, most language teachers that I know, and also myself included, we don't really do rigorous academic research into what works and doesn't work in class. We work off a lot of anecdotal evidence. So trying stuff out in the classroom, sharing that with colleagues within the school. But then there's also, especially here in the Netherlands, there are many programs to connect through universities, connect teachers and have teachers share experiences and then also connecting them online. So there's a lot of useful work happening there. That's also how you see innovation happening in language learning products. So Duolingo is a very simple example of making something like Space repetition, mainstream, even though before people would never mess with Anki, it can offer a way for teachers to say to their students, hey, use these different tools to get more input. And then as learners become more fanatical, hopefully they will discover Anki, other methods that are more suited to their style of learning and how they like to get fluent in a language. And why
1: don't you tell our listeners, what is Logseq?
0: Yeah, so Logseq is a tool that helps you organize knowledge and make that knowledge your own. So what does that mean? Let's unpack it a little bit. So when you open Logseq for the first time, it looks like just another outliner tool. So just a tool that you write in bullet points and you can indent or outdent blocks. And the
1: classic outliners here would be Emacs, Org Mode, or Workflowy, maybe.
0: Yeah, so the less technical ones would be Dynalist, workflowy. On the more technical spectrum, you would have Emacs, for example. Another well-known example, I think for many listeners, would be Roam Research. And then in the spirit of Roam Research, Logseek is an open source outliner. But it's built like Roam and some other tools like Obsidian. It's built on top of a database. So even though you work with just plain text, it's all stored in a database as well. So all your data is also stored in a database. So there's a lot of data about the data, a lot of metadata about the individual blocks, like the outlines. And that, including the data that you add yourself, yourself, for example, through links or tags or some other simple database structure that you create, which we call properties. So if you use properties, you can basically give information about the data, and that will help you build processes. So, basically, pipeline systems. You can use Lexi, which is very popular for project managers who take many notes and then want to resurface those notes in a single dashboard, or students who want to resurface all the notes related to a class and then easily turn them into flashcards. So here again, the flashcard thing is coming back. So many students use Logseq also because it's free. It's very easy to write just your notes in an outline as you're sitting in class, and then add a few simple hashtags to turn something into flashcard. And that is, I think the true power of Logseq is that obviously it's free, which for many people is a plus, it's open source. So it's very hackable. But also, it for many people, it breeds some trust that even if we decide to stop with the company or go into a direction that our user base doesn't like, that then they can continue with the app and continue developing it themselves if they want. And then obviously also the ease of use because it's in the end just an outliner. I think that has attracted many people to LogSeek to use it at least as a scratch pad for stuff that's on their mind that they don't want to forget and that they want to have an easy way to find back their notes.
1: And it's interesting that you sort of lead with the outliner, the indented bullet points, and then you mentioned links. You know, when I think of Rome, which obviously is a source of inspiration, it makes me think of almost the category I think they sort of invented, which is what I call would usually call a knowledge graph. Now, obviously, there's a history, a much deeper and longer history of linked databases, the web with hyperlinks is sort of the ultimate of that, but also something like a team wiki, like you mentioned, using in your previous career steps, but also obviously something like Notion. How important do you think of linking as being in sort of the LogSeq product? I think linking and
0: indentation, so
1: basically the
0: document as a mind map. So instead of having a text document or just a paper where you have a linear piece of text, you have more like in a mind map structure in computer talk, call it a tree-like structure, you know, (laughs) in programming language. So that, I think, is the root also of the web. So those are two things that are root of the web. So if you look at a normal web page, HTML page, the document that you look at, the code, is structured in a tree-like structure. So it's basically an outline. Every web document is basically an outline. So that is one principle that many people are not aware of, but that I think once you grok that idea, then you can become much more flexible with your knowledge. You don't have to flesh out an argument linearly. You can just choose to offload your thinking and then branch out so just like as you would design a web document you would first maybe start with some headings then you start to fill in those headings in the same way in an outliner you would start with the top level blocks and then as you become more and more nuanced you add more and more blocks underneath and then linking helps to link to any data that is not part of that same block of information so that same tree-like branch you can then link to other branches basically. So that will allow you to hop from branch to branch. So that's why I lead with the idea of an outline structure because understanding a graph database, like graph databases were around before Rome existed, like far before. So it's not a new concept, but many people are not familiar with it. Whereas if you say, This note-taking tool is like a mind map. You just create a collection of mind maps. An outline is nothing more than a mind map. For many people, it's much easier to understand, even though I still use terms like tree-like structure and traversing the tree, for example, or branches. I still think you should learn that as a user. If you're serious about knowledge work, then you should definitely become more familiar with the language. But the first principles of it being a branch, your notes being just a bunch of branches, I think that's the most important thing. And then obviously there's nowadays also the meme, oh, I will just use Apple Notes, why do I need a complex note-taking tool? I think if you think that way, probably Apple Notes is good for you, but if you want to think very thoroughly over time, if you want to refine your thinking, you need to have some tool to support that. So if you don't have some deep intellectual projects that you're working on, maybe designing a product, Or mastering a language, for example, that in itself, I would count as an intellectual endeavor that takes a long time. If you don't have that, just use Apple Notes to scribble down your grocery list and stuff that you don't want to forget, but don't overcomplicate things. So I'm really focusing on the people who are not familiar with this, but who have some kind of yearning to organize their knowledge and are willing to put some time in it to learn the basic principles of a tool to help their thinking.
1: The term note-taking in some senses overloaded. And even we pushed back in the Muse kind of positioning messaging, basically what goes on our homepage, describing what it is. I always push back against the note-taking or didn't love that because it does make you first think of scribbling down a grocery list in the default notes app on your phone. And I do that. And I think it is correct to call that note taking, but it's also correct to call it note taking that You're developing a large body of work over a long time in the process of a deep intellectual process, like learning a language, writing a book, developing a software project, building a business strategy. So it's a little tricky that both of those use the exact same word. It's note-taking,
0: the act of taking notes. I think that is correct. Even if you do, if you work on a super deep, projects trying to figure out a piece of software that will help people unlock a way of thinking, for example. In the case of Muse, you want to help people think through something, right? Mm. But the act of writing something down, that is taking note. But then what do you do with it? How do you process that knowledge? How do you connect with it? What is your inner dialogue? And then obviously a tool can help you have that inner dialogue. But then obviously you first need to set up the tool in a way that it can fire up the inner dialogue. So a very concrete example in Logseq would be, you can create templates and many users create templates for maybe a project that they are running. So they have just a bunch of headings, maybe a query that automatically digs up some kind of data from a graph. But in the end, it's just a piece of text that is structured. But first you have to think through that structure. You first need to know, how will my way of thinking lead to something? Like, how can I make it more likely that I gain insight? It's not about taking notes. It's about getting to an insight. It's about solving a problem, then exposing yourself to ideas and think through a problem to then come to a solution. And taking notes in that process is part of the process. So you're collecting maybe potential solutions, and then you structure those notes in a way that it becomes more likely that you come to a solution because you process those notes. You don't just write them down. You then also prompt yourself to look for other related nodes or for contradictory points. And in the case of, for example, a software project, you would look for a solution for a problem, but then you would also look at what other problems would the solution cause, like what would break and what are the trade-offs in, for example, a UI decision and do we have to rework in the back end? That in itself, you take notes, but you come to an insight through those notes and you need to have some kind of process to get to that insight. It's not enough to just note something down. And then I see also many people mention, if only I had some kind of AI re notes for me as I'm writing something, then I can just automatically link all those notes. I'm like, no. You are here to do the creative work. You're revisiting your notes to feed that brain of yours. It's basically almost a black box. At some point, something comes out and that you note down again. And that becomes basically an entire cycle until you come to that insight that will help you, that solution to a problem.
1: Completely agree.
0: Well, I think this could be a segue into community because at some point, so let's talk about this from the standpoint of A tool creator. Like you are more builders than I am. I'm just the community manager. Like I use LuxSeq myself, but I am not technical. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a designer. I'm not a product person at all. So I have to distill learnings from the community in some way because I want to use LuxSeq in a specific way. Obviously, I'm interested in the feedback on the product, but I'm way more interested in how people use the product and then distill patterns from users, because that's, in my position, the best thing I can do. So we're talking about what is it that our user base wants to get done using our tool. Then you can discover that in many ways. You can do one-on-one user interviews, which often are a little bit more artificial. Like I see the best things in office hours where people are sharing their screens and like, I'm trying to get this working. And then they share their screen and you see their structure of their notes. And you ask, why have you structured it? it that way? What does it help you with? And then you get insights into how people use it. You see YouTube videos where people share it. And that's basically the beginnings of a user community where people are starting to share how they use a the tool. And then an outsider may ask, why would you create a video about how you use a tool? Well, it can be many reasons. Maybe you're just very nerdy. and You want to share how you use something because it makes you happy. Like I've done that, certainly. But I see also many users who create a video about a workflow and say, well, this is what I'm trying to achieve. This is the compromise I've made so far because I couldn't get this to work. And then you get other users to chime in and say, oh, maybe you can use this, or here's a plugin to do that. Or in our case, here's a proposal for a feature request. And the more votes something gets, the more buzz there is about a feature request, the more we learn, about what workflows people are using. So it's very valuable. We as developers learn about our user base, how they use the product and how we can improve it. And then users learn from each other and create a network where knowledge is going around about this tool. So that's outside of basically the tool creators control. Like me as a community manager for LogSync, I try to capture stuff, like I try to curate stuff from the community I try to encourage people by meeting regularly, by having events and stuff like that, little mini courses that we do with the community. But in the end, the community is just doing what it does, is like trying to get stuff done for themselves and then sharing knowledge how to do it, asking questions. And then I think the job for us as a tool creator to listen, to see how is our tool used? Like we can basically hear from our community, what is our user archetype? Or archetypes and then how can we better serve those user archetypes like what features do we need to add or what UI improvements UX improvements do we need to do to better facilitate this group of users and then maybe as your features improve have more people from that niche from that type of user come in and then obviously your feedback becomes better and more refined over time so you're not trying to create a tool for everyone. You're really trying to look, who do we resonate with? And then we focus on those user
1: group first, like to serve the community as well. Yeah, good segue and good kind of context for, I think, how a product company, especially a tool creator, would use community. So yeah, our topic today is community. And why one reason I thought you would be a great guest to talk about this is, first of all, LogSeek has a great community very vibrant and part of that's the open source element, but part of that is just, yeah, that sharing of workflows and so on. But also of course your background, as you said, with the language communities you were also in the Rome community for a while. And I think in the kind of tools for thought world generally. So you have experience with a number of those. And maybe a good place to start here is I think you've teased it a little bit, but as sort of better defining what we mean by community. It could be a group chat or it could be a forum. But I think that probably is a little too mechanical. Uh, I'd be curious to hear for both you, Ramses and you, Mark, what to you is the core of what makes community or a
2: good community, might be a way to put it. Yeah, well, I think there are different types of communities. But when I think of community in the context of tools and companies and interests, it's often just a group that shares an interest and it sort of grows from there. And there are all sorts of emergent behaviors and patterns that we tend to see that we can talk about. But to my mind, it's the foundation is having a shared interest and in acting on it together.
0: Yeah. So shared interest to start that as a starting point, I fully agree. So it's, there's a shared interest, but there's also a need for each individual. So what you see happen nowadays is especially as community is seen as a moat for products like, oh, yeah, this will guard us against our competition. I'm a little bit skeptical of that because especially if you talk about the Tools for Thought space, the hardcore first adopter group, they will go from tool to tool and like rip it apart and say what they like and don't like. So those are a very vocal minority and then often as a product matures and a community matures, you have a few people that derive a lot of value from a tool and they have a reason to show up in that community. So if I look at Luxeek, Luxeek is not the easiest tool to use. We don't ship with a nice polished handbook like Muse ships with. <laughs> so just our feature overview for that, you would need to have a community. Obviously you can use Logseek just as an outliner. You don't need much to get started with that. There are some YouTube videos that will show you exactly how to get started, but then to get deeper into a tool. So once you derive some value from a tool and you think, I want to master this, I want to see what else is possible. I think that for people is a strong driver to join a community and keep showing up. And then like in social psychology, it's over time valuing what's yours and a part of your identity will be that community. So you start to value it more over time. And that's also tied in with another thing from social psychology is this need for mastery. You want to achieve mastery in some sense in your life. So all these things come together. And for some people, community becomes very addictive. I've certainly been in communities about products and games where the game or product became of second importance because the community in itself just became my main driver to come back to this group of people nerding out about something that I wasn't even using or playing all that much. But I loved the ideas about it. And I always try to learn things from communities that would then benefit me in other parts of life, like bringing my learning obsession for languages to note-taking and then thinking, what other skills can I learn using the tools that i've already learned so i think for community to thrive you need to have an influx obviously of fresh insights of people coming in so it needs to be a welcoming friendly place doesn't scare off people where people check out your product and then they see a bunch of toxicity on reddit or twitter or wherever so i think that is important and then obviously also Can you make your product stick in some way? So can you deliver value from a community about your product? And maybe some users, they will get to a point where they know how to use your product and that's all they need. They will use your product, but not go to the community because they don't need to learn more. They don't need to figure out more how to use the product. So there's less of a need for them to keep showing up to the community. So even these people, they will still be connected to your product. They have not abandoned you but they may have become dormant in the community because there's just not a need for them. They don't need to achieve more mastery. They're already busy. They already have some connection in other parts of their life. They don't need to come back to the community. And that's fine. So community changes, and I think that is fine. And it's an illusion to think, oh, people keep the same interests, we'll keep the same needs. Yeah, end of rent. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I certainly think when you think of a community connected to a product, which obviously not all and even most communities are that, but in that specific case, now you have a kind of a Venn diagram of people who currently use the product and get value from it. And then there's people who are in the community and then there's overlap, but actually you have people who are in each group. That's certainly the case for Muse. I know we have folks who either listen to this podcast or follow us on Twitter or otherwise in our sphere of discussion that just... Feel like we share values or like to follow along or we're just friends with somehow, but they just don't happen to have an iPad or don't happen to have a specific use for the product. Or maybe they did in the past, but they don't at the moment, but they're still sort of interested in the people and the culture around it. And you certainly have the other way around as well. And I think certainly most products and tools will always have a much bigger user base who are just more transactional. They just have a problem to solve. product solves a problem for them. Maybe they pop into the forum or whatever the community location is just to get some information. But again, it's very transactional.
0: Yeah. And I still think there is, for these types of users, there's still a reason to come back to the community every now and then. And maybe another segue, because we prepped like a few points. And also you asked, what are communities that I see as a successful example of a community, like as an expiring example. One community I keep coming back to is Readwise. So Readwise, it's a niche tool, I would say. Not everyone takes highlights from books and wants to revisit them. So it's definitely for a specific type of person, like eager person who wants to, you know, the more PKM person. But in the end, it's not a very complex tool. It helps you achieve a few very important things, and then that's it. So you can get started with Readwise in an afternoon and then have it give value to you for years, whereas you don't
1: even dive deeper into the tool. You just use it. And I do wonder if there's often a connection between communities and more complex or customizable or challenging to use, you mentioned for LogSeq, I think this was true for Rome in the beginning. Lack of documentation in a way can actually create a stronger community in a way because you're helping each other figure this thing out. But even putting that aside, even with good documentation, if something is complex and customizable, then that naturally leads you to want to talk to others about what they're doing with it and see their setups and so on. Whereas a product that's kind of only used in one way or a tool that's very simple and can only be used in one way. Probably not that much to talk about. True. And
0: at first sight, you would think, oh, read-wise, why would they have a community? Their community is pretty young. They started with a Discord. And the way they used it was they would approach people who were in the community for a long time, who had spoken about LogSeek at some points. Obviously, they had to find some way to identify people. A good example of how Readwise uses community, even though at the service, the product doesn't look so complex, is how they test drive new features. So one thing they do really well, I think, with their community, which is still quite young, but already very thriving, is because they reach out to users, ask them if they want to test drive new features. The way they use community is by first onboarding a batch of testers themselves so they bring them into discord they bring them into a audio or a video room showcase the new functionality tell people how to get access to that functionality the basics and then they use that group of testers to onboard other users so they basically say if you want to have access to this new feature you have to onboard one other tester And that way they have little cohorts of people using the same functionality. They have a reason to come back to the community to give feedback, but also to ask questions from other users. So that's how you see little cohorts of like community cohorts exist Mm. to test drive functionality and you see them. You meet these testers in different other little cohorts as you're test driving maybe feature A, but not feature B, and then you have some time to test feature C. So you come in again, you see people you already know, and like, hey, weren't you working on a dissertation? Yeah, yeah, I finished, and uh, now I use Readwise for this. Like, my use has changed, and it's like, oh, interesting. I've just started learning X, Y, or Z. Interesting to hear how you use Readwise. So that's how people connect, even though in the beginning... They might not show up to ask something or to share something, but there is a reason for them to show up in the community again. That is to test something out. And I think that is a very nice way to reach out to your veterans in your user base, so people who may not come into the community every day because they're just busy using your tool. But then because they know your tool so well, because they know already what's possible with it, you ask them to test drive new functionality and that brings them in contact with other people from your community. So there are several ways you can still activate community, even when your documentation is awesome, like the product is relatively simple, your feature set may on the service look like it's locked. There's still reasons for people to show up,
1: even veterans, I think, in the community. Mark, what are some examples of great communities in your experience?
2: So I keep going back to this more network-oriented community. I think as a proprietor of a business or employee of a business, we often initially think of a community as like the space that we bless for people to talk to each other about our thing. And that has an important place. And for some companies it's a very big deal. But to my mind, a lot of the most interesting communities and a place we can learn a lot are these more network-oriented ones. So let me give you two examples. One that's sort of halfway in between would be the communities that form around specific games. And these are huge, you know, they're Millions of people, a bunch of people who make their full-time living in them, for many people it's their main hobby, and so on. And these have varying degrees of support and guidance from the central commercial entity, but a huge piece of it is just people talking to other people about their interests. At the base of it, that's what a community is: is people talking to other people about stuff they think is cool. And then you can go kind of fully networked. And I would give the example of econ Twitter. So this is the group of people on Twitter who talk about economic topics, and obviously that's not blessed or controlled by anyone. It's just people talking about stuff, but it has these incredible emergent properties where people find all kinds of new interesting ideas and data and theories and find cool new people to follow. And it's kind of its own whole thing. Yeah,
1: for me, communities, at least my favorites that I've been a part of over the years, and many, most of them actually are technical or entrepreneurship oriented. I was part of the Linux world, kind of late 90s, early 2000s. Ruby on Rails was a big one I was a part of later on. Silicon Valley, you could argue, is a type of community. It's also an industry and yep. in a field which has its own qualities, but also on a smaller scale, things like, you know, when I adopted a dog, going into the kind of subreddits for raising a puppy and you have people who are, again, going through that same struggle as you. You're trying to learn from each other and trying to get empathy for your challenges, but also find solutions. So each of those in their own way have contributed to my life, both for, again, solving problems I have, personal growth, that sort of thing. But also then, yeah, you make connections with people that can turn into lifelong friendships or just be very rewarding in and of themselves, almost kind of separate or removed from that core shared interest.
2: I think the puppy Reddit is actually a really good example of how, to my mind, the two fundamental driving forces of community on which all of our stuff is based is searching and sharing. So searching is, I have a problem, which is a new puppy. I need help. So what you do is you go into DuckDuckGo and you type puppy Reddit and you go into YouTube and you type puppies.
1: Well, realistically, it's probably even more specific than that. It's you type in puppy won't stop barking or something to that effect. You know, I'm at my wits end. And then you suddenly find this place where all these knowledgeable people are gathering and sharing their stories and sharing their solutions. And suddenly you have this sense of, oh, I'm not alone in the world in this challenge.
2: Yes, and eventually you get there, but that emerges from these two. In the end, this is just individual people doing individual stuff. They're searching for stuff and they're sharing. That's the other fundamental urge, which is I've accomplished something. I have some insight. I want to share it. You know, I'm the puppy whisperer, so I make a YouTube video or whatever. And then from that, you get all these emergent properties up to and including people who make their full-time living supporting these communities.
1: Yeah, the pet example also shows how you have people who contribute to the community who are, call them like gurus or they're just professionals. So for example, professional dog trainers, there are some fantastic YouTube channels where people do this stuff for a living. I think for them, it's probably, a you know, a lead source for their business or they're selling a book or something like that. But they're very genuinely making these videos, showing them, teaching about a specific thing you might train a dog or a specific thing you might need to deal with, showing it with a real dog, talking about it, kind of, you know, in this live way. And in doing so, providing you some value. And then of course you can follow them and maybe that leads to their business. So they're a very knowledgeable person sharing because that benefits what they're doing in their career. But then another category is often the someone who just solved a problem and they're so relieved and they want to go and share that. Maybe in some cases with the help of the community, right? You see these posts where it's update this problem I wrote about that was destroying my life. We found the solution. It was, you know, I combined a few ideas that you folks shared. Here's where I landed. They share their solution. And in that moment of breakthrough, as you said, they want to share, they feel excited and compelled to share with others, not because they think, yeah, just because I think it's a natural desire when you've had that moment to want to pass that knowledge on somehow.
0: This is interesting. Also, Mark, that like you say, most communities are made up of
2: searching and sharing. I guess my argument is that that's where they start. And then you get like higher order behavior that we would more typically associate with community like you know, collaboration and real time discussion and belonging and leadership and you know, all these things. But I like to study the emergence of these phenomena. That's all. Yeah.
0: And I think that is also to maybe segue into the platform discussion, because I think for many community builders, the perennial platform discussion is very interesting. What is better? is a Facebook group better than a subreddit or a proprietary forum like that I host myself better than Discord? I think first the discussion is what kind of medium do you want to facilitate? So obviously there are emergent communities where there is no driving force from a brand and you see those often pop up on social media. So Twitter, now Twitter also has communities. So you see users create, in the case of Logseek, an unofficial Logseek community. We obviously as a company started a Discord, which we promoted. We started a subreddit, which we promoted. But that's not always how it goes for many projects, especially open source projects. Like it's almost as if the community sneaks up on the creator. I've spoken to open source, creators who said, I didn't expect this project to blow up. I don't have time to manage it. I hope to just pass it off to someone as soon as possible. So we have other maintainers. So that can happen.
1: And a canonical example of that one is the Notion TikTok I think this was a couple of years ago, Notion actually was having some scaling problems because I think it was mostly students that were sharing their personal dashboards and how they would put it together. And it was a lot about aesthetics and things like that. The overlap of the sort of people that work at Notion and the people who are on TikTok, especially a couple of years ago, was not big. Mm. And so they were totally caught by surprise. Where's all this new usage coming from? But that's a good thing. You want to invest in that or double down on it or support it because community that emerges is even better than one you've seeded yourself. But then you may also be in a position, I think, I suspect they were, where they go, wait, what is this weird new way of communicating? We need to learn the language of this platform. That's TikTok, where we see that our users have emergently chosen to gather.
0: Yes. And I think it's very important as a brand, once you see that there are communities about your products that you tap into that and that you support those existing communities instead of saying oh we're going to start a competitive platform and then siphon off all the members i think that that will not do you a lot of good in the community especially not as people put in time and effort into cultivating those early communities outside of the brand at some point i think you will have to manage it a little bit as you see needs pop up within the community so a very concrete example within That our Discord is now growing towards twenty thousand people, so twenty k, and it's becoming a wild west because you see people ask questions all day, every day, and many of the questions have already been answered. So what Mark pointed out, so many communities they come, about because people are searching. If I look at Discord communities, it's often the default is asking instead of searching. And that is, I think, because searching in uh, Discord communities is so... Like, search in Discord is not good. It's flawed in many ways. And then also how it organizes discussions. Unless people say, oh, I'm going to open a thread now, it will be like scattered around. Other discussions will be going through. So as long as a community is small, I think chat and basically the scattered nature of a community are fine because people, like little packets of people, they are finding each other and they're small enough that there can be real-time communication and people can benefit real-time from each other. But as the repository of knowledge grows, you want to have some way to capture that knowledge so that people don't have to ask the same question over and over again. So that is a conundrum that we are in now where we have a wealth of knowledge in Discord It's almost impossible to search. And to avoid more knowledge from leaking basically through, we are trying to direct more and more people to our forum. And it's a little bit of a confusing name, but Discourse is a very good forum software. So not Discord with a D, but Discourse is really good forum software that has... Many of the principles that also the modern note-taking apps have built in, like bi-directional linking, they have built in and mentions and stuff like that. So I can link to a post and the creator of that post will get a notification that someone has linked to their post. And at the bottom of that post will appear all the other posts that have linked to that one post. So you have a sense of bi-directional linking. It has wiki functionality. So, what we are now trying to do is encourage more people to write on the forum, and then that our moderators curate as much as possible, moving finished and answered posts to a section of the forum where they're easier to find, helping people search the forum. So, that's where the knowledge in a community becomes like you're creating a canon of all the knowledge in your community by providing a platform where it becomes easier to sort through that knowledge. So in the beginning, I think you want to make it very easy for people to ask and to share. Chat is a great way, but then at some point you will see that people are asking the same questions over and over again. And then I think that will become a very good impetus to look into other platforms that will help you manage or at least make knowledge searchable instead of having that big mess on social media, like Facebook groups, Reddit, Discord, and then have it centralized and indexed by search engines,
1: preferably. Another company that went through a similar transition just recently is Kraft. And they also had a Discord or a Slack, maybe I think it was, got quite busy. And they recently set up on Circle, which is another kind of yeah forum-style product And yeah, same thing where they can curate it much more and you come in and you have a help section, but also an inspiration section. Here's some workflows. Here's where you post feature requests. There's a lot of curation beyond just the very most basic, like let me pin a thing to the top and that it's just a, you know, a flowing feed of, you know, real time information that is sort of very hard to sort through if you're new to it. Yeah. And that knowledge, I think also when it comes to a platform, because you'd mentioned Circle,
0: I'm not too much into the loop of Circle in recent months. But I know, for example, Discourse, it does really well in combination with Google. So the posts are really well indexed. So when people search online, it's very likely they will end up on a forum post on the official Lexi forum. So I think that is also an important consideration. So Google or DuckDuckGo or any other search engine, obviously. But I think for taking your user base into consideration, like what are the tools that people use to find knowledge? Are they inclined to look in your app? So not go on any search engine, but just look in your app for guidance on how to use the tool. If they do, then you can, for example, say you want to connect with our community, Here's a link to our form. And then you send them to Circle. So in that case, even though if the platform is not indexed by search engines, if the majority of your users access your knowledge anyway outside of search engines just by going to it directly, that may be a good choice. In the case of Logseek, we have a very big subcommunity of programmers, coders. What do programmers do? They use search engines. They're not going to, oh, I go into this menu in the app and then click on help and then scroll down and, oh, here's a link to a community. They don't do that. They just search like problem, help, seek And then they find a forum post and that could be their entry into the community. So I think it really depends on what kind of user do you have. And what are their behaviors? So again, coming to the user archetypes, what are the behaviors of your users outside of your product? Like how do they interact with technology in general? Are they independent, curious people? Maybe in that case, you want to create a different type of documentation or community or knowledge repository than you would for maybe a less tech-minded person who likes to scroll through windows and visual menus instead of searching for something, for example, using text.
2: It's interesting to me that video hasn't come up yet because I feel like increasingly the default behavior for people looking for stuff is to type it into YouTube because a lot of the search engine results that we get now are just algorithmically generated trash. But on YouTube, for whatever reason, the results still are pretty good. I think that has to do with it's kind of harder to fake a video when there's a certain proof of work that comes with highly produced video. And obviously video is very high bandwidth. So I'm just kind of curious how that resonates with your experience with the logstick community. Is video and YouTube is that a big part of it, or people are just all text all the time?
0: I think it depends on the type of user. So our early user base were definitely mostly programmers, hanging out on GitHub, reading README files, just testing stuff out. I think now that we're slowly attracting Still adventurous users, but maybe not the coder types. I think that has spurred the creation of videos. So obviously, we ourselves are producing videos by recording our sessions. They're long sessions. So again, it attracts a specific type of user who is willing to sit through a one-hour demo of Luxy queries. Some users just want to have a two-minute video, but that's generally not our user base. And then obviously you see more and more users just create videos themselves. I think as Adam pointed out, it's also experts who have maybe some business adjacent to Logseq. So maybe they don't sell Logseq courses, but they help professionals or teams, small teams manage knowledge. That is definitely something I did when I was freelancing. So before joining Logseek, I was helping small teams. And I think that is an excellent marketing material for those individuals to provide value to individuals, get to know a tool. And then what we do as a company is to really give those creators a platform. So we have a weekly newsletter, which is a curated newsletter, contains plugins and themes created by our users, but also videos and other walkthroughs. And there I definitely see 90% of user-generated content are videos. And I think also because it's the nature of the tool, it's a text-based tool, obviously, but the way you use it is very much, obviously, tied to an interface. You're not just working with text, you're working with text in a specific interface in an outline format. So it's much easier to just show how you do something than to create screenshots of different steps that you take It's much easier to just show it in a video. So I think that is really something that has boosted the energy in the community where people are just sharing off-the-cuff videos. Like many people just, they don't put too much thought into it. They just show, oh, this is how I annotate PDFs and then turn them into flashcards, for example. And then other people respond to that. It's like, oh, interesting. I have now created a plugin that supports this workflow of yours better. And that's how you see the energy started to become more and more as people are learning from each other and spotting opportunities to make things easier. And the video is definitely one of the most driving factors in
1: that. Yeah, Mark, I think the point you made about the proof of work where it is more effort to make a video, even a pretty off-the-cuff one, like you just mentioned there, Ramses, which is you know a quick screen recording or something like that, still the bar there is much, much higher than typing some text into a real-time chat or even a forum. And so for me, I guess you could say there are YouTube communities, but I feel like there's more like YouTube channels and I like to subscribe to certain channels and maybe I read the comments sometimes, but not usually. I'm not sure if it gives me the sense of that's where I go to meet other people with similar interests the same way that I would for something like a Reddit or a Discourse or a Discord. Well, I think one interesting development is maybe
0: not people posting stuff to YouTube, but answering forum posts or chat posts using a Loom video. That's Hmm. what I see a lot. Obviously, those are not easy to find as a YouTube video because they're not indexed. And I think as a community manager, I see it as my job to reservice that knowledge. So I see maybe a Loom video mentioned or posted in the Discord. I will save that video and then mention it in a newsletter. So that's how I resurface it Mm. because the newsletter is also posted to our blog. Then that video suddenly becomes indexed by search engines. The way I see it, it often starts by answering chat. Maybe then in a forum, you get people who are maybe not an expert yet, but they are growing expertise and then they think, oh, I've seen this question five times already. I'll just quickly record a Loom video without me in the screen, just my screen. And then I talk to the screen basically for five minutes, show my workflow, very unpolished because, you know, Loom doesn't have any editing features in the free version. And then you just post it. And for many people, I think that is like an entry to content creation. So it becomes Mm. more likely the people that do this, at some point they will then post something to YouTube. But in the intermediate, in the meanwhile, you can already help and facilitate people because maybe the community is not even aware of something called Loom and you just have a one-pager where you say, hey, you want to answer a question instead of typing it out, here's a cool tool, these are three steps to use it and then just paste the link to the chat, to the forum and it will show the video itself. Like a very quick walkthrough to help your community share knowledge. By helping them understand how they can share knowledge, because maybe they want to share, but they have no idea how they can share. And then nobody has to become a YouTuber. They can already create videos very easily.
1: Yeah, screen recordings are great because maybe you want to tidy up your desktop a little bit or something or tuck away some information you don't necessarily want to share publicly, but by comparison to filming yourself and or your room, which creates a much higher sense of, I don't know, production value, or I better comb my hair, or better like tidy up my background. anxiety. (laughs) A screen recording, so it feels much more within reach at a casual level or for someone who's not already a creator.
0: Yeah, I've once attempted doing YouTube videos where I would talk into a camera, and then I found that so nerve wracking I just kept editing the video that I thought, how can I still do this without having that anxiety on me? And weirdly enough, for me, I know it's not for everyone, but for me doing live sessions and then just really framing it, it's Mm -hmm. a live session, stuff can go wrong and then do no editing except for maybe cut off the beginning and the end and then just post that. That somehow took away, it sounds very weird, but took away social anxiety because I thought, I frame it as something that can go wrong and I'm still putting out the content. And I've noticed also with people who may not be recorded, we facilitate that as well by having office hour sessions where we just come together in Zoom. And then I ask people just share something that doesn't work. And then they share their screen, maybe not even their camera. And them knowing that it's not being recorded will not end up on the web that already takes away some anxiety from people to share their stumbling blocks or what they're stuck with. So they're not even sharing their knowledge. They're taking a first step by stepping up and saying, I have a problem, please help me. And then I noticed that over time, the more someone does that, next time you see them in the office hours, they have their camera on. Next time they're in the office hours, they're maybe answering stuff in the chat. And I've seen people that were super shy End up in YouTube videos where they're being interviewed by other people. So it's a journey that people go through. Some people are just very outgoing and they're comfortable on camera and they just do this without a problem. But for many people who are on the internet and want to participate on the web, want to become part of a community, at some point, for many communities, it's normal that you show your face or that you at least some people like you dox yourself, quote unquote, and you are putting yourself out there. I remember for me, it was super scary because once I started to record some videos online about language learning, some colleagues found my videos and they were making fun of me. It was like, oh yeah, I'm putting my face on the internet. And now it's so normal. And I think for many people, the more you do it, the easier it will become to ask stuff. So starting by asking stuff and then just sharing what you know. And some people made their careers out of it. And even if not their careers, I've definitely heard of people who have become active in communities, on forums, on chat, in live sessions, and now they have made a promotion because they have become more assertive, they become more comfortable presenting. So it has all these secondary effects that you may not go into a community with because you go into a community because you have a need or because you want to bond with people who are interested in the same things you're interested in. But it has secondary effects as you hang out with people and talk about something, you become better at articulating your ideas or explaining things to people or asking questions to clarify things. That really becomes a valuable skill in itself, which many people I think gloss over, but especially in this digital economy where people will have to turn on their cameras and explain things via the internet This will become an invaluable skill. And most communities are safe spaces to practice this skill.
2: This reminds me of a pattern that I often see in communities, which is like power levels or character progressions or skill trees. No one starts being a Keystone member of the community. You start by logging in for the first time and saying hi. And then there's typically a progression. Maybe you ask a question, maybe you answer a question, maybe you be someone who becomes recognized as providing good answers. Often with the communities I'm on power, people get promoted to become moderators where you have additional enumerated powers. And then often in big enough communities, people can get you know further promoted to becoming a paid contractor and eventually full-time paid staff of the kind of lead content creator. In the same way that we do hiring with these, I really like that model of, there's this kind of gradual ramp where you have increasing levels of responsibility and commitment and ability that kind of ramps up over time.
0: Yeah. I think it's interesting that this has become a opportunity in recent years where you come up through community and then join the projects that you've been a fan of for maybe years. Because before, like when I look at community, I've been part of communities for almost two decades, again, from video games to note-taking tools. And I never had the intention or the expectation that I would make my career out of that, that I would hang out in forums and live Zoom sessions with people just nerding out about my favorite tools for a living. But now in recent years, that has become a possibility. For me personally, that possibility opened when pandemic started and we went into lockdown in the Netherlands and my whole company, we basically went remote from one day to the other. And then after six months, I thought I am still tied to this one place where i work even though the stuff that i do i could do anywhere so why not branch out on my own why not dedicate my time to stuff that i really enjoy talking about and then see if i can make a difference there and that's how i in the end landed this this job at, at Luxi and i've seen this more where people Maybe not even with the companies that they are fans of or that they're writing about, but other companies that see, hey, the way you write, and it can be just on Twitter, or the way you explain this product on video, we want to talk to you because we're looking for maybe educational content creator, or we're looking for a support person because obviously people coming from the community for companies, it has so many advantages to hire someone from the community. Obviously, it also has some downsides, especially if there's drama in the community, obviously, with that baggage that can be negative. But then on the other hand, you have people who know everything about your tool and they're passionate about it. We have started hiring people from the community. I am an example. We're now having several contributors who are basically a part-time contractors because we support them every month we have a commitment to them that we pay them a certain amount from the community fund because we have donations that we pay them to create specific pieces of functionality. And maybe they have a gig with us for six months and then they move on to another project that they're passionate about. But in the meanwhile, they're really sharing their knowledge. They're interacting with the community. And then after, even if after they have finished that project, they are part of the community. So they keep getting that feedback. I think that is very valuable. And it's really changing how people work. And I think more people, especially with technical capabilities, will find their way into professional work through these communities. And maybe not even set out with that idea, because I think, like you said, Adam, you need to show your worth. And you cannot just come in and claim your stake. You have to prove yourself. You have to help people. And then at some point you will get noticed. I really believe that this will, for many people, replace their CV. They will get offers from companies who are impressed by the work that they're doing online already.
1: Well, certainly we see this in, yeah, the open source world, or if you work on open source projects or side projects or things like that, that can be absolutely a path to employment. And yeah, you're building career capital, essentially. That leads me to actually another question that I think is specific to your company, but I've seen in plenty of other places. You mentioned plugin developers, and there's obviously the developers who are working on the code itself. And I know something that's common in many open source communities, you really need to bifurcate a community or a discussion place for users of the product from developers of the product, because they have very different interests, concerns, maybe even the ways that the developers talk about the inside of it It doesn't even make sense to users in particular, and it becomes clutter. And again, if you have plugins, that almost becomes a third category there. I think you mentioned, or maybe at some point we mentioned Obsidian. They have, I think, a pretty strong kind of plugin ecosystem and community around that. How do you think about the segregation or integration of those three classes of people involved with the product? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question.
0: This is something I'm struggling with, and that is a constant discussion. And you actually, just gave me an insight through that question because now I realize why Jensen, our CEO, is so adamant about keeping our code contributors on GitHub as much as possible, and use you know the GitHub functionality like comments and the issues and the boards for the code contributors as much as possible, and then have the beginning, and I would say also power users in another community, so the forum and the Discord. Obviously, we have Discord channels where our developers are, where we interact with plugin developers, where we answer questions. But it's funny because if you look at our channel list, it's all the way down. It's not where generally the average user would go. Like We have all the help channels and all the more mainstream workflows we have all at the top all those channels are at the top and then somewhere at the bottom you have the development channels and then when people report bugs and say come with very intricate bug reports we always send them to github because we say that is basically where our developers hang out yeah i think there's something to say for that and then also for combining everything because I think the question you should ask yourself is what kind of user do you want to attract? Like maybe you only want to have that hardcore technical user. In that case, maybe you will not even create Discord. You'll just completely do everything on GitHub. That will basically be where your community lives because you can create a wiki there. You can have boards, you can have discussions. So it could work as a community platform, but obviously only very technical people, programmer type people will hang out there. So if that is your focus, I think that would be all right. Then on the other hand, we also have users who, even though they are siloed off from all that code stuff, they still feel to become a power user in LuxI, I need to become a coder because they see, for example, the way to create a table with your notes. You instead of in Notion, you would point and click and just filter your tables. In LogSync, you need to write a query code, and that can be very daunting for people. So in that case, you want to have people find educational materials, have a channel where they can ask questions. But then when you look in the channel where the people hang out that have the answers, they tend to be very technical people and say, oh, don't bother with this query, just write some data log query. And then they come with uh, 20 lines of code, and people are like, okay, I'm going back to Notion. (laughs) <laughs> so it's very difficult. So this is something we struggle with. Like a company like Craft, for example, you already mentioned Kraft. As far as I know, it's not open source. And it's a different type of community where they are more focused on the end user. Whereas we as a community are not just focused on the end user. We have also open sourced our code and we have open sourced our documentation. So we want the more technical people to definitely come in And we also want to have a path for the less technical people to have some kind of progression where they become progressively more technical, hopefully to a point that they can contribute to the product. So either documentation, but there are even people who have made the step to creating plugins and then from plugins becoming uh, core contributors where they actually push code for the core product and anywhere in between. But I think you have to be conscious about it as a brand and then really stick to it. So maybe some people, like a very vocal minority of non-technical users will say, we need to have uh, point and click interfaces for these type of functionality, but maybe that's not where the majority wants to go. So as an open source project, obviously the people who code, they decide. So you can scream a lot as a user on the sidelines, but many people at some point realize, if I want to support this specific workflow, I will need to build something. And we're unapologetic about that. And some other products will say, no, we, don't. we want to shield off all the technical part, all the technical stuff, and just focus on people using the product as we intended it. And we have a different philosophy where we say, we want the user base to influence how the product works and where it goes and
1: how it's shaped. Well, before we go, I thought it'd be nice to tease a little something that's coming. We're now working on a Muse community. And of course, we want to be thoughtful about how we create that and make sure it's something that's in tune with our values and our approach. But one of the reasons we are speaking, Ramses, is that you gave us a few tips on how we might think about the best way to get started with that. So I'd be curious if you could summarize for the listeners' Some of what you told us and maybe just general advice for creators that want to kickstart their community.
0: Yes, I think the most important thing to keep in mind uh, when starting a community is that the community is for the community members. So it's very easy to step in the trap of thinking this is our community, it's our brand community. It's not your community, it's the members community. And then they will come in with questions and they will share their knowledge. So I think it's very important as a community facilitator, so you as a brand, you facilitate that community, to highlight useful things from the community. So useful answers or tips and tricks, workflows, I think that will be very useful. Also looking at how you've already structured your knowledge, the knowledge about your tool where you showcase workflows. I think that could be very useful where you showcase some things from the community and then actively involve your community with testing new features. So maybe you can consider the people that showcase the most proficiency with your tool, like based on the answers they've given to people, that you invite them maybe in a better tester group. Obviously, You need to be careful with this because it can create some jealousy. I've definitely seen that in communities where people say, oh, how do I get access to this beta program? So you need to be careful with that. But I think it's a very good way to involve your community, to have a reason for your community members to keep showing up, to keep coming back. Because especially for the veteran members, at some point will be less appealing to come back because they will answer the same questions over and over again. Use that. And then as you grow, keep curating those useful nuggets of information. Find some way of making them easy to find, either in your knowledge base, documentation, and then really provide a platform to community contributors. So in your case, it will be mostly knowledge that is shared on how to use your tool and just keep that positivity going where people just share how they use the tool. Be very mindful of criticism. So that in itself can be a very powerful marketing tool, how you react to criticism. When people maybe are blessing you in your community, it might be very attractive to silence them or going against them. I would say thank you for your feedback. And then just ask questions to clarify what they mean and what they run into and what are the downsides and what would be the potential upside if it would work the way they expect the product to work. So really engage in a dialogue and that for you as a tool builder, I think can make it a very valuable learning experience as well, not just for your community members, but also for you. Secondary effect will be that the conversation between members will give you insights on how to improve your product. So those are my main starter points. Make it easy to find stuff, listen to
1: your community to improve your product. You make it sound so easy. (laughs) I think in practice it is not, but as with a lot of things, The core principles that make something good are simple enough when laid out, but sticking to it over the long term is the challenge. Human relationships are always messy. So
0: I've definitely come across as a jerk where I had to apologize to people and say, sorry, I misunderstood you. And yeah, it's an old cliche, but I think you should be (laughs) humble as a product creator and listen to your community. If you value your community obviously you can also think my vision is the only thing that counts and i don't want to listen to my users even on how to build my product that's a choice you can make but then obviously the question arises why do you have a community it's like why would you want people to figure out how to use your product if you're going to dictate anyway how they should use it then just create kick-ass onboarding materials and ignore the whole community aspect and let people just congregate on their own on social media without you meddling there. But if you value your community, you have to listen to them. You have to engage with them. And then I think it can be a very valuable relationship between your user base and also the team.
1: Excellent advice. Well, let's wrap it there. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you have feedback, write us on Twitter at MusappHQ or via email, hello at musapp.com. And thanks for helping us all be more aware. I think as product developers, we're pretty good at twiddling the bits inside the computer to make do what we need. The community, as you point out, is a very human, almost a fundamental human endeavor and takes a very different set of principles and skills to bring that to fruition. But I think one that's very worthwhile.
0: Thank you for having me. It was fun talking about community and also how we can shape our products.